Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Word on the Hill podcast with the Lanky Guys. My name is Scott Powell. My name is Father Peter Musset, and we are so happy that you're joining us for the 23rd Sunday in Ordinary Time. I feel like whenever I start the podcast, I'm, my voice sounds like it's going to be much more of an exciting kind of a podcast than it actually is. <laughs> That you that you set the wrong tone as, I, it, as, maybe. as, as, as if you're building it up because it, to be more awesome than it is. Yeah, it's gonna it's gonna be some major sporting event or something. <laughs> Thanks for coming out on a beautiful Sunday afternoon <laughs> at the links, everybody. Dude, you know what I'm really here's hoping. a theological podcast. I'm so <laughs> hoping that at some point in your life, because of your children's engagement with sports, mm. that you have to be like a sports announcer for like high school football or something. My uncle is a well-known sports announcer in Ohio. He is the voice of the Maslin Tigers, Walter <laughs> J. Bronzek. <laughs> no, it's a, he's a big uh, deal. I have no. Um, he's a big deal. Yeah, yeah. I have no ability to. See, the other day you were doing your. He's night. a great sport. So I'm just. What I'm saying is, it runs in my family. It runs in your family. That's all I'm getting at. Well, the other day you were doing your your 20s voice when we were you were announcing <laughs> the football game when we were at the Rocky Mountain Showdown because <laughs> we were at a football game. Yeah. So what better place? It was so interesting, but I didn't realize the reason why 1920s radio announcers used that voice was specifically that it cuts through noise. Really? Yeah, there's Cuz it was a noisy game. Cuz what happens is that you go slightly above the normal um uh hertz levels for the human voice. So it's now it's a little bit sharper and you can hear it over everything else and then the microphone picks it up. So Good evening everybody. And we can see Charles Lindbergh flying over the Atlantic right now as we speak, coming in hot to the stadium. That's exactly what I'm saying. That was all nonsense. I that was really, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Speaking of which, speaking um, of nonsense, our first reading for the 23rd no, not, Sunday in Ordinary's time. Not spe- I didn't declare it. Not speaking of nonsense. Speaking of the Word of God, I, I <laughs> misspoke. Speaking we of, are nonsensical. The Word of God is always good yeah, and true, yeah. and, and good for teaching and reproof. What you just did yes. was <laughs> is um, offer nonsense. Okay, thank you. Oh no, oh, this transition was nonsense. And yeah. so you called that out, not the word of God. That's what I'm trying to clarify, just to okay. let myself up the hook. This is going to be a weird I'll podcast my today. conscience. All right, our first reading <laughs> is, <laughs> is from Wisdom, chapter 9, 13 to 18b. All right, I had our responsorial psalm is Psalm 90, verses 3 through 4, 5 through 6, 12 through 13, 14, and in giant capital letters, 17. <laughs> and the response itself is from 1. So our second reading is from Philemon, or Philemon. Uh, Philemon is how I was always trained to pronounce it by the British trained teachers that I had. Philemon. Philemon. Which, uh-huh. it, can we talk about, can we talk about all of the people on Sunday who are going to open the lectionaries and be like, what is P-H-M-N? <laughs> and look at the abbreviation and be like, what? Dude, you know. Who what, is that? You know what I want to do is I want to have a Greek house and it's going to be Philemon. <laughs> okay, five lemon, um, nine to ten, twelve to seventeen. Did you know? I don't want to get ahead of myself. That Philemon is my favorite book of the Bible. You have told me that before, and I've forgotten about it. And I don't feel like I love you enough to remember. <laughs> I mean, hold on, hold on. Wow. That's not what I meant to say. What I meant wow. to say is that is that I that you cannot love what you do not know. And I feel like I love you more now that I know your favorite book of the Bible. Whatever, though. you said what you said. All right, our gospel <laughs> is coming from chapter Luke versus uh, chapter, oh my. The gospel of Luke, chapter 14, verses 25 through 33. Okay. Oh my. What, how, where did that come from, man? I don't know. The uh, things that make for peace. 
the things that make for peace is loving sure. loving no, no. your your brother and actually not true i mean yes of course come on of don't, course don't, don't skip ahead we got we got we well, got miles can... to go before we get My, to that and narrative. miles to go before we sleep okay so wiz wiz wisdomium really <laughs> wiz. all right wisdomium we've had um we are you heavily said, you said you said philemon and so like no you since... said philemon <laughs> i said philemon <laughs> Is, oh, that's the Sprite version. Oh my gosh, <laughs> of the book. <laughs> what is? Where are you today? <laughs> oh, you're in goofy mode. Um, wisdom. We have been. What is this? Well, this is year C, right? Of the of the lecture lecture yes, lectionary I, uh, calendar. Sure. Because because we're in Luke. We've been in yep. Luke, so we must be in year C. Yep. Um, this has been very heavy on the wisdom literature. In no the first kidding. We got we've got about a Sirach. We got Quoaleth. We've got and a bunch of wisdom and this a is, bunch of wisdom. So it's it's funny. Even as I was going through this morning, I'm like, I, I feel like we've said this. <laughs> I don't want to be like a a bro. It, this is okay, you guys. If you want insight into doing a weekly podcast, <laughs> especially one that has Thank a you. nature of repetitive things like the readings do, one of the challenges that I face is saying the same thing. Trying to say something new for all the people who are listening and have been listening for a while, but also making sure you cover that thing for all the people who maybe have never listened before and never caught it. That's a hard balance for me. You know what I'm saying? It's a hard balance for me, too. Is it weird for you when – so I I used to – when I taught at the the Catholic Biblical School at the seminary, I would teach the exact same class four times a week. And it was very confusing to me to keep track of like, wait, did I already say that? No, I said that on Tuesday. But, you know, and I assume it's the same thing with homilies. Like you're giving the same homily again and again and again, or essentially. When you do three homilies in a row and like there's a certain point in which you're like talking and you're like, oh, I totally missed that point. Right. Or did I already say that or did, but they don't know. Yeah. It's hard. I gave a homily the other day and I was like, man, these, I, I was thinking about it. I was like, I was like, when anybody comes to church, basically they listen to me. Like. Over and over and over and yeah, over and over unless again. It's Father Sean. Unless it's <laughs> <laughs> or some other priest <laughs> anywhere else in the world. But yes. <laughs> otherwise it's all about you. <laughs> just kidding. That hurts. I'm just kidding. Come just, on. just stab me in no, the heart. No, I did not. With the yeah. Oh, for Pete's sake. With a candlestick. So Well anyway, um, wisdom. But, but this is the oh. thing is is you have this moment where you you like you have to dig so deep into the things that you're going to say that you yeah. you have to experience them because, um, I mean, it sh- goes to show they're not going to necessarily remember what you said, but they're going to remember how you made them feel. Uh, that's true. And so, for better or for worse. Yeah, for better or for worse. Yep. And so, so you have to feel what you're saying, regardless of whether or not you're getting all the details out. Okay, wisdom. So, no, wisdom. It is one of the Deuterocanonical books. So, which means it doesn't show up in our Protestant friends or our Jewish friends' Bibles. Um, for, for a number of reasons that we've covered elsewhere on the show. But wisdom, it's um, probably a product of what's known as Alexandrian Judaism. So it's probably written around the same time that the Septuagint was taking form, right? So when the first Greek version of the Old Testament was being right. crafted and translated and composed in Alexandria in Egypt about 200 years or so before Jesus. It's probably of that time frame. It's put in the voice of Solomon. So it's, it's worded... As though it's Solomon speaking, yeah. Um, but a lot of people think that it's probably pseudopigraphical, which means, <laughs> yeah, I, I did, I pulled that. Yeah, which means it's it's not. There, there's no there's nobody's trying to lie or pull the wool over our eyes. It's it's taking this well known, really profound, important figure, and putting saying sort of in his mouth in a, in a narrative for for the narrative effect of it, right? Because Solomon was known for his wisdom, and so, but what it talks about is a couple of things. Number number one. Um, 
what it means to have wisdom. So, so the love of the Torah and the love of wisdom, the love of creation, God speaking through his word and God speaking through his creation. But it, it's very, we've talked about that a lot before, but here's right. what I want, the, the new thing I'm going to pull out this week. The other thing that wisdom kind of does is really set out an us and them mentality. And that's part of why I think it's fair to place it in this particular period in history or maybe just after, because there does seem to be some sort of a persecution or threat that this book is responding to, right? It's, it's, it, it, and it uses Egypt all over the place, which again, I think Egypt is almost metaphorical for the enemy, right? These are the, the, the forces that are against us, the powers that want to get us, that want to oppress us, that want to hold us down. I don't think it's written during the time of the Exodus or anything, but I think Egypt is this symbol and this image of threat and oppression and everything else, right? And so it definitely lays out this us and them. This is who we are. This is who they are. God's word is binding for all human beings, but we know it and we understand it and we are called to fulfill it and live it out in a very distinct way, even if everyone thinks we're fools, even if everyone thinks we're on the wrong track, even if they're out to get us, even if they try to persecute us or kill us, it's still God's word and that goes above everything else. But it's almost taking a defensive stance, which tells me that this is being written in a time of opposition Mm. or even more so in a time where Jewish identity is being threatened. Where a lot of people are tempted to assimilate either the Greek culture or maybe Roman culture and identity is being lost. And this is calling on people. No, don't abandon your identity. This is who we are and this is who we are in relation to God. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Sorry. It, it's interesting because the, the, it, it being expressed in that that polemic nature in this reading, yeah. that po- polemicism, is that um, I look at and I... I'm realizing because it, it's talking about almost about the weakness of will. It's saying that the, yeah. the, the things that totally. I try to choose in this particular make, reading, yeah, yeah, and that I try to make happen in the world are thwarted. And even if I'm like, you know, it's it's all contingency plans. It's um, it, it, things are uncertain. Um, I, I love that word uncertain. Our uh, the for the deliberations of the mortals are timid and unsure are our plans uncertain. Mm. Um, because it, it puts in contrast the experience that other uh, that God's plans are so solid um, mm. and that, that if we want to make ourselves like unto God, yeah, then oftentimes we rally our will up. And you mean in the good way or in the bad way? Bad way. In the bad way. Because the, there's a good sense to that too. Right. Holiness means to be like God, but it, right. in, the, in the true sense, right. in a humble sense. In a humble sense versus to be God. To be God. God. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So... There's this sense in which you can almost see somebody kind of like trying to muster their will mm. and and manage the entire world. Right. But that Which even, is the human temptation. This is what Adam and Eve felt to. I mean, this the, is perennial. This power. Yeah. And then yet what happens is is that it gets flipped on its head mm. that the humble one recognizes their weakness and that and then it says, um, except you had given wisdom and sent your Holy Spirit from on high or Whoever knew your counsel, except you had given wisdom and sent your Holy Spirit from on high, and thus were made the paths of those on earth straight. And thus were the paths of those on earth made straight. Okay. So what happens is that what we're seeing is that the imperfection of the will 
okay. that we can't actually do what we want to make happen. This sounds like Paul, right? I- interestingly enough, right? We can't do what we're made happen, what we want to make happen, but that in God's this is a ri- the effect pl- of original sin, right? And in His crazy plan, He sent His Holy Spirit on, from on high, and that God's understanding of everything that exists actually makes even our feeble kind of Attempt. weighed down efforts mm. to cooperate in in His plan. Mm. Which is just, it's just a really interesting thing because I, I, hmm. I try to do all these things and they break. Like, it's like, <laughs> or, or like I'm trying to do built, physically. Yeah, built in couches right now. I, I'm trying to muster my will and make them happen as fast as I can. And yet the lumber is twisted and I have to compensate for things. And you, you're always like, and, and right. everything isn't perfectly straight. It's not like. And it never looks exactly like the image in your mind looked. Right. Yeah. I always, you know, the, it's funny that you should mention that because. Well, sorry, I don't want to move on too quickly, but it reminds me, it doesn't actually remind me of the psalm, (laughs) but it reminds me of the context of the psalm. Mm. And the context of Psalm 90, Psalm 90 is described as uh, a psalm of Moses. Okay. So whether Moses wrote it or just comes out of the tradition of Moses, um, really what Psalm 90 is reflecting on appears to be kind of this moment... Uh, there's there's mention of the wilderness and and you know that first um, verse what we have is the responsical responsorial responsorial it, the, what's the responsical again antiphon there's there's no such thing as a responsical it's a versicle that's real uh, versicle's real do you see how deeply you've damaged me <laughs> like how how deep in my soul you've damaged you my understanding of the world. You, you, because it's just it's just oh tied enough to something that's real yeah. that it confuses it all, man. And I didn't know that the real thing was until you told me the false thing. So now you've—I mean, do, do you know? You know what? You know what delights me about better this? for you that a millstone be tied around your neck. No, 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 no. <laughs> is that is that a father for his children? They always add something that's a little bit weird in life, and they just persist in it in yeah. such a way yeah, that, that you're a little bit screwed up for the rest of your life. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so like, the fact that, that I've done that to you, it makes me feel like such a good dad. <laughs> thank you. It's thank a little, you, sir, it's a little weird. Yeah. No, it's true. All right. So Moses, though. Um, so despite the actual response, in every age, O oh Lord, you have been our refuge. Which is good and sounds positive, and it's true. Of course, God has been our refuge in every age. But if you put it in the context of the rest of Psalm 90, um, Psalm 90 is this, it, it's sort of a lament in some ways, put in the mouth of Moses, of the recalling how unworthy we are to look upon God. Hmm. Reflecting on the sin of the golden calf, reflecting on this moment, remember God actually turns away and will not show his face anymore to Israel. And Moses kind of reflecting on that of like, oh my gosh, look at what we've done. Now we're not worthy to see your face. We are, we are, um, uh, what does he say? You turn men back to dust saying, return to dust. A thousand years are in your sight or as one day uh, that has gone by, like you sweep men away in the sleep of death. We are so small. We are so pathetic at times your anger and your wrath it's so great it's so big all of these things and yet and yet in you we still find refuge it's only in that recognition of our smallness and our weakness and are not able to do it that we find refuge and the reason what you said before that kind of reminded me of this the context that this falls into it's right around this time period for Moses that he's going to give be given the instruction by God to build this dwelling place for God on earth. And the way that he does that, which is in a certain sense, plan B for God, 
Because yeah. remember, God originally, he was in the form of fire and smoke and led Israel in a visible, tangible way out of Egypt. There he was. And because of their sin and their disobedience and trying to be like gods or make other things like gods other than God, like you said, God sort of turns his back. And thus we get the tradition of the tabernacle and then the temple, which is a way for God to still be with his people, but a little bit more removed. A little bit more symbolic. A little bit more symbolic. Well, not quite symbolic because it's still real. Right. He's in there, Yeah. but, but it's distant. And Moses is shown mm. this vision of the holy of holies in heaven. Mm. And God says, this is my throne room. This is what the holy of holies and the temple that bears me in heaven looks like. And he says, I want you to build one of these on earth. And you have to think that the structure that is built on earth doesn't come close to whatever that image that Moses actually saw in heaven was. That's what Hebrews, I'm actually sad we're not in Hebrews anymore, because Hebrews continually draws that out, right? Mm. That the earthly temple was was just a, a... pathetic shadow of the heavenly temple that it was meant to represent right which gets us to the last line of the last strophe of the of the um psalm of the psalm which my father actually prays all the time every day before he goes to work give success to the work of our hands give success to the work of our hands Mm. which it goes back to this idea of Mm. like we have these feeble efforts and if we recognize them as such, right. then they can be very beautiful and profound and be right and fit within God's wisdom. Because that's what wisdom is, right? Right. It's recognizing the reality of how things are. And to be wise recognizes, no, I will never actually... How do I want to say that? You, you, you were going on the right track, and I, I derailed it. That we can see it caught up in the glory of God, even if it fails. Or even if it's smaller or, or, or slightly smaller, imperfect that's exact, or not That's quite, exactly it. Yeah. It's smaller. Small. That's actually the, the place that I keep coming back to. I keep on thinking about how Therese, hmm. she unlocked so much because um, you have the greatest expressions that exist within the world. Yeah. Like you have these saints that are so massive. Yeah. But like that's the that's yeah. the thing is that it it can be both small and <laughs> large yeah. and glorify God. But yeah, small is beautiful. Isn't that a book? Isn't that a famous yeah. book? Yeah, I think that's tiny houses or something. Is, is that <laughs> no. like the tiny house? I think it's like philosophy manual? or theology. No, small is beautiful. The yeah, I I remember that. Yeah, okay. there's something profound. Okay, okay so f- Philemon, <laughs> Philemon. People say I don't. I always say Philemon. I think it's just because British trained people taught me this, but. This is my favorite book in the Bible. Um, and I, 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 that sounds like a big hyperbolic statement, but I think it's actually true. And I've been thinking about... Philemon was actually on my mind before I realized it was a reading for this week. Really? Which is interesting. And I, I, I just it kept coming up. So I don't know. Maybe I need to pay attention to the fact that it kind of keeps coming up for some reason or another. Yeah, I think that that's actually... I, I, dude, I think once you, you should lead a study of Philemon. I'm doing one next week with the focus team. And, and whatever staff want to come. Oh. Anyway. Uh, Philemon? Philemon. That's how I want to start our kind of um, semesterly Bible Oh, cool. Study. Except for Luke 24 you did last week and shared yeah. my thesis with them. Oh, yeah, I did. Well, I, absolutely. Yeah. Did they tell you? They told me. Mm. They were like, that was the most amazing study I've ever had in my whole life. They, <laughs> they were totally laid out. It oh, was It good. was so beautiful. I love discovering scripture and i love it Wa- i love watching, watching people, people discover, discover scripture it. yes i mean that's a, that's got that's why we mm. love doing that's this why podcast. this works yeah. yeah okay so philemon here here's what's going on philemon is i think it's the shortest book in the bible right it's oh. literally it's not even a full chapter 
which is why most people don't even notice that it exists <laughs> because yeah. it just kind of gets lost in the shuffle. It's right. not even a full chapter. It's um, you know a handful of verses. But here's what happens. It's this little letter about a guy who lives in a place called Colossae. Once there was a man who lived in Colossae. Yeah. Um, sounds like a <laughs> limerick. A limerick. I didn't mean it to go that way. Yeah. Anyway, Colossae, remember Paul writes another letter to the Colossians. So the Colossians is a, a church in Colossae. So Colossae is not that noteworthy of a city in the ancient world. It's, you know, it's just your average everyday Joe city. It's like a like just a Wichita, kind of Kansas real, kind real of a, regular just a regular normal. place. Yeah. Um not much more to say about it. It's a Greeley. Yeah, it's like Greeley. It's just, you know, it's just a it's just a place. Yep. <laughs> anyway, it's um but there's a guy in um in Colossae named Philemon or Philemon, whatever you want to say. And Philemon is a house church leader, right? Which means he is a prominent Christian. He is obviously wealthy because a house church was how the early Christians would gather together. Before they had built churches, the way that they would figure out where they would worship was just who had a house that was big enough, right? Right. So Philemon was probably a man of good standing and honorable, and he had a house big enough to house all the Christians. And so he's there. He was He's a prominent Christian leader there. Paul had baptized Philemon. Paul had shared the gospel with Philemon and become sort of his spiritual father. Does that make sense? Yep. So that's relationship number one that we need to know. Relationship number two, there's a guy named Onesimus. And Onesimus, and this is where things get a little weird, Onesimus is the runaway slave who formerly belonged to Philemon. Mm. Okay? Okay. So Onesimus, and we don't know exactly the story. You can read between the lines and kind of figure it out. But Onesimus... Um, Onesimus had, it seems, stolen something, probably, from Philemon. Okay. Stolen something from his slave owner and run away and escaped. And in the Roman law, to steal something, the, the punishment for stealing, punishment fit the crime in Rome, right? So if you stole something, the punishment was your arm would get cut off. If you ran away from someone, your feet would get cut off. Like, that's the punishment. Yeah. That's how it was supposed to work. And so Philemon's probably ticked off. His slave has run away. He's mad. And here's where it gets interesting. Onesimus had been caught by the authorities for something else he did wrong and thrown in prison. <laughs> yep. And when he's thrown in prison, guess who he meets in prison? Paul. Good old Paul, who's usually in prison. <laughs> right, exactly. So there they are. They're in prison together. They strike a, strike up a conversation. And eventually Paul, because that's what he does when he's in prison, he shares the gospel with Onesimus. Onesimus becomes a believer, falls in love with Jesus, is baptized by Paul, and now Paul is Onesimus's spiritual father. So Paul is now the spiritual father of Onesimus, who is the runaway slave of his other spiritual son named Philemon. You see where this yeah, is going? Absolutely. And so this letter to Philemon was meant to be read, and he actually says it's meant to be read in the house church before the whole congregation. Because what Paul is going to tell Philemon, he wants to make sure everybody else hears. And so this was meant to be read like before mass, literally in his house. And he basically spends the first part of the letter buttering up Philemon, saying, oh my gosh, Philemon, you are the best. You're such a good guy. You're so holy. You're so generous. You're so gracious. Man, what a great guy you are. Right. Which he needs to do to kind of get to the ask. Yeah, exactly. Right? And he says, basically, I'm sending back Onesimus. And presumably, With a letter this on letter, his chest with like a safety pen. <laughs> right, with this letter. Yeah. And he says, I'm sending this letter with Onesimus back to you trusting that you're going to do the right thing. Right, Philemon? Because this man has become my son. I, he says, I urge you on behalf of my child, Onesimus, whose father I have become in my imprisonment. I am sending him, that is sending my own heart back to you. 
And he says, I'm reading from the reading this week. He says, I would have liked to keep him for myself. I really like Onesimus. We got along really well. I actually thought we could do great ministry together. Like he's really significant to me. But I didn't want to do anything without your permission because I know that you have some authority in this. So good old Philemon, who's such a great guy, who always does the right thing. Hint, hint, nudge, nudge, everybody listening in the congregation. I wanted to send him back. during So that the good that you do might not be forced, but voluntary. Right. So you make the right choice. <laughs> make the right choice. And he says, perhaps this is why he went away from you for a little while, that you may have him back forever, not as a slave anymore. This is Paul. You know, it's funny. People sometimes accuse, who read the New Testament, accuse Paul of being soft on slavery. Because rarely does Paul actually come out and say, slavery is evil. Slavery is bad. Stop doing it. He doesn't do that. Paul actually has a better strategy which is actually going into the lives of slaves and slave owners and trying to reshape their identity and their relationships with one another Mm. and making them see not just, you know, you could stand out with a big placard or a sign and say slavery is bad. You could do that, and that's valid. But Paul's strategy is actually different. He's like, I'm going to undermine slavery from the inside out. And I'm going to say, yeah, I'll send him back because, yeah, I get there's this authority, but I want him to be not your slave, but your brother. And he says this is why he was gone, so that you may have him back forever, not as a slave, but more than a slave, a brother, especially beloved to me, but even more so to you, or at least he should be more so to you, as a man and in the Lord. He is not a slave, he is a man, he is a brother. So if you regard me as a partner, welcome him as you would me. Yes. And then he ends the letter by saying, hey, by the way, I'm going to come check up on him and make sure he has all his limbs. And <laughs> He's like, get a room ready for me because I'm coming to visit soon. I'm going to make sure that Onesimus right. is there. And yeah. it's the beautiful, and it kind of ends there. We don't know how you know, it plays out. It's just sort of that. And so the, the thing I wanted to mention about this, I'm always fascinated. The thing I find, I, it's a neat story. It's a kind of a fun narrative to read through. But I'm always fascinated by the fact that this letter about two seemingly insignificant people that we don't really know anything about other than this, actually made it into the canon of the Holy Scriptures meant for all people in all times, which is weird, right? Which I want to show you why this is important in the gospel. Well, I think I know why it's important, but you will. Well, but we'll get there. But uh, but but I uh, go ahead. Oh, well, just two things. Um, number one, I, I one of the principles I love to function on is that the Scriptures love to interpret themselves, right? Right. Um. We don't know the end of the story. It doesn't say whether Philemon made the right decision or not until you read the book of Colossians, which is presumably written years after Philemon. And if you read the book of Colossians, you know how Paul in his letters always gives like his say hello, say hello to so-and-so and his shout outs. Well, he gives a shout out to Onesimus, who is now, by the time that Colossians is written, an incredibly prominent member of the Christian community, excuse me, of the Christian community in this town. And so you actually get to see the other side. You're like, oh, not only did he make it, but he's a prominent member of the community. And then if you read further into church history, we actually have records of a bishop in this part of the world named Onesimus around this time period. And I love, you can't prove that it's the same guy, obviously, but I love the thought that not in the Christian worldview, in the early church, not only can this um, fugitive runaway slave escape punishment, not be punished, be taken back in the community, made a brother, but actually become a bishop and a prince of the church. Because that's how deeply our smallness actually gets reflected. If our smallness is seen rightly in the light of God's grace, then it can become profound. Then it become the thing that God wants it to be. 
it's so and Onesimus cool. embodies that, and it's so cool because like the justice that um, that uh, Philemon wanted for his slave who stole his stuff or whatever yeah, he or did. Whatever he did. Um, oh, Paul has this great line that we didn't get to read. He says, <laughs> "I love it." Sorry, he says uh, he's like, "Oh, if he stole anything from me, put it on my tab." <laughs> oh, by the way, you owe me your soul. <laughs> But no, it's cool. It's cool. If he stole some trinket from you, just put it on my tab. I'll pay for it. Which goes, I love that. Which goes to the willfulness that we were talking about in the first reading and in the psalm, that we say we are trying to accomplish these things, where even in justice's sake. Yeah. Um, and yet, what does the perfect will of the Lord do? He, this guy ran. He just bailed. He, he, yeah. he bogged. <laughs> he's he, out. He's out. Right. And, and yet, in the Lord's perfect will, what does he end up doing? Is transforming that into his glory, into his grace, yes. for all time, for all people, right. everywhere. Like right, that, right. you think that you think that you're you're like getting away with something, but in fact, the Lord is the Lord is doing amazing things. Right. And and then in another sense, Paul. I mean, I think the other reason this is so profound is that Paul then becomes a kind of a Christ figure in this, because right. what fundamentally does Christ do? He stands in between the gap of two parties that have been severed between God and humanity. Mm. Jesus becomes human and steps in the gap to bridge us. Paul risks his identity and his reputation, whatever else, to step in the gap between this wealthy slave owner and this runaway slave. And he says, I'm going to put myself in the middle and I'm going to trust that this is actually going to be redemptive. And so I, I love imagining the early church in various places saying, hey, what do you guys want to read this Sunday? Oh, let's pull out the letter to Philemon. I want to read that one again. Let's let's do that one this Sunday because I want to be reminded of, you know, these seemingly insignificant people who demonstrate in this profound way what the plan of God is and how our smallness can actually be great in the will of God. Mm. And because that book shows us what wisdom looks like in everyday life. And it just because at some point the early Christians had to be like, yeah, let's read that one again. Yeah. Let's go back to that. Let's put that in the Bible. Mm. And I, I I don't know. There's something really beautiful to me about that. Well, then we which have to the gospel to Luke, which is like, okay, uh, we're gonna there's there's some connection. I think we're gonna discover it. All right. But there this is there's this is a complex reading. This is really complex. <sighs> yeah. Okay. Listen to this. I mean, it's like <laughs> <laughs> no, it is. It is. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I have some. I have a couple of things to say, but yeah, get, uh, I do too. I mean, not it, much though. I have one thing. So it's like th- this moment where Jesus is addressing them in a very plain, straightforward way. And the them, by the way, at this point is great crowds. It's not the apostles. It's not just the disciples. It's the multitudes. This yes. is the for everyone version of Jesus's message, right? Okay. Yeah. So the, the first line that's super hard. Okay. <laughs> if anyone comes to me without hating his father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters, and even his own life, he mm. cannot be my disciple. Yeah, that's a tough break. Dude, this is the thing is if you look at the word hate um, and try to understand what it is, um, it's from uh, 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 Miseo, okay. which is uh, which has a, a sense of this. It's a, it's like um, depending on the context, this verb ranges in uh, f- from meaning disfavored to detest. Mm. But it's a broad term. It's a broad that's what, term. That's one of the things that's implying. Right. So so hate, whereas um, uh, hate generally suggests affective connota- connotations that do not always do justice to this shame, honor-oriented use. Okay. So it's so it, it, hate has—so what happens is we hear hate and we hear an affectation. Mm. 
versus um, which, which is interesting in my studies what I ended up I ended up in my studies looking at the Hebrew um, and the Hebrew Greek uh, relationships and it got me to Deuteronomy 21:14 not Malachi not Malachi because it's using Malachi as well Okay. This is interesting, and this is the, the so Deuteronomy 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 second plan, um, right of the firstborn son. Okay, if a man has two wives, the one loved and the other disliked, and they have borne him children, both the loved and the disliked, and if the firstborn son is heir, uh, it is hers that is disliked. So. The firstborn hmm. is the disliked one. Then on the okay. day when he assigns his possessions as an inheritance to his sons, he may not treat the son of the loved as the firstborn in preference to the son of the, the disliked one, who is the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the disliked, by giving him a double portion of all he has, for he is the first issue of his strength. The right of for firstborn is his. I keep thinking of the story of Jacob and Esau. Yes. Yeah. But whereas, because that's almost an, a corrective in the midst of that. Yes, totally. And that's what Paul goes to to describe this relationship of how the Gentiles actually fit right. in the schema. And which is the relationship of Onesimus. Oh. So what, what ends up happening is that oh my. You, you see that here is the disliked one oh, who man. has an inheritance in Christ that, Look at that is now being defended by Paul. Look at that. It's, and and if you believe, if the church histories are what I think they are, he does end up getting the double portion in a certain sense. I mean, right. yes, Philemon's a, a wealthy house church leader, but then Onesimus presumably becomes a bishop. Absolutely. And then look how the table, not not in the sense of like, Tables oh, Philemon totally got hosed. No, 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 not that. No, no. But this is Mary's Magnificat, right? Right. The mighty shall be brought down. The lowly shall be lifted up. The it's little. the ironic reversals of the story of salvation history. That's how it works. Right. So, I didn't think to apply that to Philemon and Onesimus. So when we talk about the disliked one, is that is that Jesus, I think, is asking of everybody that they reconsider how they are oriented towards family and friends because he is establishing a new church. So he's talking to everybody and he's attacking the primary bond to be able to expand it in a way that is... Um, that is actually calling something great on. And I, I, I'm, I'm struggling to get to the detail. Well, well, that's interesting, though, because I had mentioned that part of the context of the first reading is that the Book of Wisdom does really stress this sort of a, an us and them mentality. Oh, yes. Which is family, friends, ethnic identity, which is important. I mean, it's very, very much important. Right. But it does stress this sort of over and above the them. And there are times when we need to kind of circle and, the wagons and like rediscover who we are and hold on to that. But the gospel of Jesus is really turning that on its head. And it's written in Greek. Yes, I, well, absolutely. So, right. absolutely. so what happens is even the language itself is we're huh. starting to understand that there's, yeah. there's a, an intrinsic invitation even in how the book is written. Yes, absolutely. Intrinsic invitation so, embedded in it. So he cannot be my disciple unless you say, okay, I'm actually willing to surrender right. something really profound i'm willing to surrender my will yeah only that person is able to become my disciple that's and that's what it is because it's not don't go out and hate your mom no I mean, it's that, not that's about, not it, what he's saying it's not an affectation no thing. exactly right it's saying, it's saying will you surrender your will here which that's the perfect setup for the second half of the reading okay but uh, you you had something else though no 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 keep going okay um, okay, so then Jesus gives this kind of little parable or a little mini parable, parable lit. <laughs> um, and he says, okay, so which of you, 
wishing to construct a tower does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if there's enough for its completion. Otherwise, after laying the foundation, finding himself unable to finish the work, the onlooker should laugh at him and say, this one began to build but didn't have the resources to finish. Or another little parable well, let. Well, here, okay, yes. Okay, keep going, keep no. going. Because I'm looking at that and the first thing that I saw was Babel. Which is uh, which was this was the profound yeah. expression of humanity trying to make a name for themselves and being unable to actually accomplish the will of their lives, and, well, and a lot of getting it, thwarted. A lot of what what is believed Babel was up to was kind of trying to be like God in the sense of I mean what, yes. Babel's coming fresh from the flood, right? So the idea is if God floods the earth again, we're going to be ready. And we're going to be higher and above. We're going to build a tower so that we will never be subject to God's wrath again. Mm. Because we can build enough and develop enough technology that we don't need God anymore. We are not at his mercy any longer. That's mm. really what Babel is all about in a certain sense. Mm. Which I won't put the pieces together for you on that one. Um, but but you have this tower and then you have this other one. What, what king marching into battle will not first sit down and decide whether... With 10,000 troops, he can successfully oppose another king advancing on him with 20,000 troops. But if not, while he is still far away, he will send a delegation and ask for, the translation that you're going to hear on Sunday says, for peace terms. But literally in Greek it says, he will ask for the things that make for peace. Which doesn't sound that significant unless you read on. So hold on. Um, In the same way I say, anybody who doesn't renounce all of his possessions cannot be my disciple. This is a much more dramatic call and challenge that Jesus is issuing to these great crowds than it seems like. Because that line will show back up in Luke chapter 19. And in Luke chapter 19, I think it's around verse 40 or so, it's when Jesus finally gets to Jerusalem and he looks at the city. And remember, he looks over the city on Palm Sunday, right before Palm Sunday, and he weeps over it. And he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, killing the prophets and stoning those who were sent to you, would that you have known the things that make for peace. But mm. they were hidden from you. Remember, that's what Jesus yes. literally weeps over. And he goes on. I actually want to get this right. Um, would that today you knew the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies, the Romans, will cast up a bank about you, surround you, hem you on every side. They will dash you to the ground and your children within you. They will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus says when he gets to Jerusalem, I wish, I weep over you because I wish you knew the things that make for peace. But he says in no uncertain terms, you are going to launch in headlong into an ill-fated war with the Roman army that you are never going to win. Because you've put your faith and your trust and your alliances and your will and your allegiance into false messiahs that tell you the job is to slaughter and kill and tear down the enemy. And I tell you, and if you remember back to what he said five chapters prior, you're like the king who has 10,000 troops, who looks over at the king with 20,000, who is Rome, who is so much more powerful than you. And you should look and be like, wow, we're never going to win this war. We do not have the strength. Maybe we should consider something else. Maybe we need to humble ourselves and make ourselves smaller because we cannot build this thing that we seem to think that we can build. It's too small. It goes back to your craftsmanship, the the building question, right? We have this grandiose vision 
Yeah. But what we have the resources to build is far smaller. But if we give those small resources over to God, then he can build the tower. He can build the mansion. He is the king who can win the hearts of everyone. We have our smallness, but our visions, it's become so grandiose. And if we actually saw it, then maybe we would be like Paul sending Onesimus back, saying, no, this is so wrongheaded. The job is not to slaughter you. Philemon's maybe lust after justice is not to kill the one who has wronged him like Israel wants to kill the Romans who have wronged them. They're actually in the Christian vision is another way to proceed. There's another worldview, but it's going to entail, in a certain sense, hating father, mother, children, brothers, sisters, nation, political motives, political alliances, power, power, willfulness. It's going to take the opposite. Would that you knew the things that make for peace. Well, this is why, this is what makes sense of Jesus saying, you have to take up your cross. Because the cross for them was the symbol of shaming from Rome to oppress the people by horrible, distorted torture. Yeah. So what happens is he's saying you must actually accept these things, which which has been the history of of Israel saying, give yourself, let yourself actually go to Babylon. Yeah. They're going to actually, this is... Listen to this. This will actually make for peace. Jesus is saying, I'm going to surrender my will to the Father, and this is going to make for peace. Do you know who gets this more than perhaps anyone in the Bible? <laughs> no, that's too big. Whoa. But more than most people in the Bible? Who? Onesimus. Yes. Who says, I'm going to literally walk back. I mean, can you imagine what that would be like? Not just to, to Philemon, but to be the slave going back to the community that you have brought shame upon yourself, they're all going to want to kill. I mean, the guts that it would have taken to be like, no, I am a new creation in Jesus Christ. I have nothing. Mm-hmm. I have such smallness, but I will put my cross on my back and my letter bobby pin to my front, and I will walk back as Israel was asked to walk into Babylon with full trust that God will actually protect me. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a guy who get it. This is a man who says, I'm going to go... And I'm going to pursue the things that make for peace because I understand my smallness and I understand the greatness of God. And maybe he's even praying Psalm 90 saying, oh, Lord, in every age you have been my refuge. Oh, Lord, in every age you have been my refuge. Oh, Lord, in every age you have been my refuge. Can you imagine the sweat pouring out of his head as he's approaching the city Mm. with what he's about to do? And this is a guy who gets the challenge of what Jesus says in Luke 14, right? Yes. Which is kind kind of nuts if you think about it. And again... From a worldview point of view, he's the last person that should get it. Yes. He's a slave. He's nobody. He's a runaway refuge, you know, um, uh, not refuge. Uh, slave. Yeah. Refugee. <laughs> no, not refugee. Um, whatever. Fugitive. Fugitive. That's the word I'm trying to. I kept thinking of uh, Harrison Ford, and I didn't know why his name kept, or his face kept popping in my Father head. Father Colin Parrish, actually, after our, uh, after our uh, podcast a little while ago, he sent me a, 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 Who? a GIF. Father Colin Parrish oh, oh, in yeah. Seattle. He, uh, he sent me a GIF of the oh, fugitive no. because we talked about the fugitive so many times <laughs> the other week. Awesome. Which, but that's the thing. is in, Christ is the fugitive, and that's here's it. an ismus in the oh, midst the of it. Yeah, yeah. And so here we are. Wow, that was, thanks. That was I, cool. That was really cool. I, I, there, was, there was a lot that got unlocked in that. There's that's a lot what, going on in there. Sorry if you're at the last minute trying to craft a homily from that. <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot of stuff in there. Just talk about Philemon. Yeah, there you or, go. Or Philemon. It's a uh, dude. This is the thing: is we should start a clothing line, a Christian oh, clothing line. Philemon. Philemon. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. 
refuge. <laughs> I'm sorry to end it on that note after yeah, I, such profound things. It's all right. That's how we do it. This that's is, our pedagogy. This is our pedagogy. <laughs> <laughs> all right, you guys. We'll be back next week. Okay. Have a wonderful 23rd Sunday in your time. God bless you. Bye-bye. Bye. The Word on the Hill podcast is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.thomascenter.org slash A-I-C-T. And you can find the Lanky Guys podcast at lankyguys.org. Thank you so much for listening, and we will be back next time.